0: The music you're listening to is The Bridge, composed and performed by 2010 National Medal of Arts recipient and 1983 NEA Jazz Master, Sonny Rollins. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Today, September 7th, we're celebrating the 87th birthday of jazz legend, tenor saxophonist Sonny Rollins. Rollins has played music for over 70 years. He began as a teenager, playing with icons like J.J. Johnson and Bud Powell. In the 50s, he was a sideman for Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis, and then he joined the Clifford Brown-Match Roach Quintet. He also teamed up with John Coltrane for the recording Tenor Madness. Let's face it, if I were to list every musician Sonny Rollins has played with, it would be a very long who's who in jazz. Because of his sheer talent and absolute dedication to the music itself, letting it take him wherever it leads, he has been the Jazzman's jazz player and acknowledged as its greatest living improviser. Rollins has recorded at least 60 albums as a leader, and a number of his compositions, including St. Thomas, Olio and Doxy, have become jazz standards. He's always been an adventurous musician, not afraid to change or embrace the sounds of calypso, Latin, avant-garde, funk, and R&B. His solo work is unsurpassed, either playing solo gigs, or when performing with his band, launching into long, extemporaneous, unaccompanied cadenzas. He's played in venues around the world. And as much as his CDs are lauded, and believe me, they are, Some critics have thought Rollins reached his pinnacle as a musician on the concert stage. Luckily for us, Rollins began recording many of these performances in 2000 and has released four CDs that give listeners a sense of the experience of seeing him perform live. Because of respiratory problems, he hasn't been able to tour for a few years and recently stepped away from recording as well. Still, he was incredibly gracious, allowing me to interview him in his Woodstock home earlier this summer about his music, his memories, and his philosophy. So here we go, Mr. Sonny Rollins.
1: I uh, always loved music. My older brother, five years my senior, wanted to be a classical violinist. So I used to hear him practice. I really enjoyed listening to him practice. And I just loved, loved music. You came up in New York, my city as
0: well, at a time when music, especially in Harlem, but not exclusively, was exploding. Tell me about what it was like to be in music at that time in New York City.
1: Well, I was born in Harlem. I was born in 30, and uh, of course, at those days, we had the radio. I heard uh, some of my great people, Fats Waller, on the radio. As soon as I got old enough, I uh, began trying to go to see them in person.
0: Weren't they playing in clubs? Was it hard for a kid to get into the clubs? Oh,
1: yeah. I didn't get into clubs until I was uh, in my teens. The clubs that I remember getting into were the clubs where uh, 52nd Street, which was Jazz Street. And, to, and when I was going down there, I had to put on eyebrow pencil to, to look a little older. and then You mean, like go make there. a mustache? Yeah, of course, it looked ridiculous, I know. <laughs> but they, they let me in. They, you know, they probably wanted the money. I didn't go into any clubs like the Cotton Club and all this stuff. You know, that would be too uh, adult for me. What attracted you to the music? Well, when I heard Fat Swallow, for instance, then I really realized that this was what I wanted to do, what I must do, what I had to do. So I was very fortunate. I heard a lot of these records. Louis Jordan, uh, which I I loved. I was hooked by that time, and I I knew I had to be a musician. So I bogged my mother to get me a saxophone. And
0: why the saxophone?
1: Well, I think it was Louis Jordan was a saxophone player. And I used to go to the school, my elementary school was across the street from a nightclub where he played at. So it was this great picture of Louis Jordan with his uh, tails, beautiful, shiny saxophone. And uh, it just happened to be at that same time as when I was beginning to listen to his records, So it all came together, you know. So Louis Jordan was a big inspiration at that time.
0: And you started with the alto sax Mm -hmm. and then switched to the tenor. Mm -hmm. What, why that?
1: Well, actually, my mother got me an alto. Of course, I was a young boy, so a tenor would would have been a little bit big for me anyway. But she got me used alto. At that point, it was all the same. They were all saxophone or alto or tenor, whatever. There was just this. That was it, to have a saxophone. You know, I went in the room and, and I practiced, and my mother, to always tell people, my mother had to call me for dinner. I was just in there, and I was just playing. I, I don't know what I was playing, but I was playing something. And I was in heaven. And that's mainly how it's been all my life, with the saxophone. It's really been a transcendental experience whenever I play.
0: And when you, when you went to the tenor, mm-hmm. did it feel like you
1: well, were coming the, home? Well, the reason why I went to the tenor was because I heard another saxophonist at that time, the great Coleman Hawkins. And Coleman Hawkins had this great record out, Body and Soul. You'd hear that all over Harlem coming out of all the bars and every place where they had jukeboxes. So I became captured by Coleman Hawkins, who was very different from Louis Jordan. Coleman Hawkins was much more intellectual, I could put it that way, player. Louis Jordan was just more earthy. Coleman Hawkins was really a great musician harmonically and things like that, what he was doing. It was very, I would say, advanced. Dense. Yeah, it was dense. And boy, everybody was trying to play uh, that body and soul. So after that, I began to uh, want to play tenor. Coleman Hawkins then became my prophet. And eventually, my mother got me a saxophone. I must have been maybe 13 years old, something like that. And uh, this time she got me a brand new saxophone. Oh,
2: that was a big deal.
1: Yeah, it's a big deal. She went down to Manny's Music Store, which was a big music store on 48th Street, and uh, I got my uh, King Zephyr tenor.
0: Very soon thereafter, you met Thelonious Monk and began playing with him. How did you meet?
1: I played at a little club someplace in Harlem on Lenox Avenue someplace, and Thelonious Mark was featured. We had a kid band, really, that played opposite Thelonious Mark. So uh, that's the first time I met Thelonious. He liked my playing. Let's see, uh, I was early teens at that time.
0: And playing with him? You had a deep relationship with him.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, that happened later. Oh, boy, it's a long, a long story. But uh, there's a friend of mine, uh, Lowell Lewis, a trumpet player. We had a band together, and we went to high school together, the whole thing. We were two buddies. And what happened was that Monk had a band. He was taken out of town to Chicago, and Lowell went with Monk to Chicago for a week. I mean, that was a big, big thing. We were in high school. We were about to graduate pretty soon. But anyway, so... Lowell said, hey, Sonny G, I'm going to get you with with Monk, you know, you got to get with Monk, you know. Monk might have remembered me from earlier when I first met him. I'm not sure about that. Anyway, he liked, Monk liked my playing, so I got in the band pretty easily. I was playing with the band.
0: I've read, playing his music is really difficult.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember one time in, in particular that there was, uh, let's say myself, four musicians uh, were rehearsing at his home. And, uh, of course, he lived in an apartment building. So it was like a small bedroom. There was four, four guys and they playing. And so I remember the trumpet by saying, hey, Mark, we can't play this music. It's impossible to play this on my horn, you know? So it was that kind of stuff that went on all the time. Mark had been writing things which were not the norm. Anyway, generally, by the time the rehearsal was over, everybody was playing it. Everything came out, (laughs) was fine, you know. But on first hearing it. Right, Hey, man, what's this, you know? But anyway, so I uh, began uh, playing with Mark and Mark liked me. I was like one of his protégés. I used to go down to his house, and we used to hang out and the whole thing, you know. That was really good. And then, of course, I played with him after that, with um, recordings, so on and so forth.
0: Did he give you advice, or was it...
1: No, no, Just letting you be. Yeah, yeah, more letting me be. None of those guys give advice. If you're qualified to play with Monk or with anybody of of note, of stature, especially in small bands, I could see Dizzy Gillespie with his big band, and Dizzy was a natural teacher. He was always showing guys uh, different chord progressions. So Dizzy was different, but... Most of the guys that I played with, if you were there, then you should know what you're doing, or else you wouldn't be there. And if something came up and you had to ask Monk, well, gee, Monk, what should I do? Then you're not in the right place.
0: What attracted you to improvisation so deeply?
1: Well, I know that improvisation is really the pinnacle. All music, I respect great arrangements and everything. But to be able to create music on the spot as it comes to you, that's really the top, because you're getting the music from above or from wherever, around you, what, what, whatever. But the music is...
0: Almost coming through you?
1: Coming through you. See, so this is different than knowing what you're going to play and reading music and this, and then, you know, applying a solo, which is very much close to what the music is. It's a completely different thing. This is what determines great music. John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, uh, Bud Powell, all these great improvisers. These people are really at the top, and uh, all the musicians recognize that. When did you begin to play with Miles Davis? I began to play with Miles Davis, I think, in 1948. Thank you. We had a good relationship because he's a very sensitive guy.
0: And a genius, both as a leader and as a player.
1: Oh, sure. No, 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 no. He was he was definitely... He developed a persona. You know, Miles used to turn his back when he was playing on the stage. So everybody in the audience said, Oh, wow, what an arrogant guy. Look, he's turning his back. Actually, Miles was doing that because he was shy. He was trying to work out something. But this work to to develop a persona of being arrogant and, oh, man, wow. But Miles was nothing like that, really. He was sort of a pex bad boy in, in a lot of ways. I really love Miles. He's really a great musician, a great friend. He was one of my best friends. The
0: ensemble with Max Roach and Clifford Brown. Mm-hmm. That was an amazing group of people, and mm-hmm. the CD, Sonny Plus Four.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah.
0: And I'm just so curious when, when I'm listening, especially to Kiss and Run with you and Clifford Brown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did you feel like you were in conversation with him musically?
1: Yeah, and Clifford was a superb musician. That was a beautiful part of my uh, musical life, playing with Clifford. He was such a great musician and a humble person. from observing Clifford. He was a humble guy, and he played all this great music. He and I became very close. He was a great artist, taught me a lot. To play as great as he played, a lot of people would have a uh, big head, you know. I mean, it would be normal if you played that much. You would have to have some affectations. But uh, Clifton didn't have any of it just about playing the music. And you were close to John Coltrane. Oh, yeah. Another, Coltrane a seeker. was my really friend. Him and, and Mark were my really two best friends. Miles was on a different level because, um, well, Miles was always a guy that had movie stars by his house. I mean, you know, he was sort of in that social strata. But, uh, yeah, Coltrane and... And Monk were really the two closest uh, musicians to me. And playing with them,
0: what does that feel like?
1: <laughs> what does it feel like to yeah. play with them?: <laughs> Well, it's a completely different space. It's so different than anything else. It's, it's like when you have a world that we are living in, now, what I like to call the small picture world okay now there's small picture then there's a big picture infinite as opposed to transient world that we live so that's how it is playing with them you're in a different space it's indescribable there's no comparison it's like being in the big picture and then here we are living in the small picture <laughs>
0: train uh, relentless practice ethic. You practice...
1: <laughs> you- yeah, yeah, I think so. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I like to practice all the time. I train practice all the time. And uh, I remember one time John was playing down at the Half Note, which is a club in New York. You can sort of look in from outside and see the stage. So... Coltrane was playing there one night, and after the set was over, you know, everybody would come outside, leaving the club, a lot of musicians and everything. Coltrane was standing there by the stage, working something out, playing. And uh, it's normal for him, but some musicians were saying, well, gee, I thought this show was over, you know, something like that. So it's not about that show. I remember one time, I was playing in, uh, in Germany, in München, and France it went well, but there was something that I was trying to work out. And after the job was over and everybody ended the job, people going home, I was trying to work this thing out. You know, somebody saying, oh, Sonny, blah, blah, the guys are packed up, they're leaving. I'm not into that. I'm trying to work out something musically has nothing to do with playing at a concert or anything of that sort. It's, it's the music that we're trying to do. So I shared that feeling with Coltrane. We both are like that. So yeah, I like to practice all the time, any place I can, outside, inside, on the bridge. Now, how did
0: you end up on the Williamsburg Bridge practicing?
1: Well, well that was the same thing. I was living in a, a small New York apartment and I couldn't really practice in there. And I just happened to be walking down Delancey Street one day, and I saw these steps going up. I didn't really, never been on the bridge. And I walked the steps, and wow, I saw this expanse. There's nobody up there. So I said, wow, what is this? So I walked across the bridge towards Brooklyn, So I realized, well, thank you, God, I found my my spot.
0: practicing then, were you practicing songs, sounds, technique? Oh, everything. All of it. Everything. Because this was a sabbatical when you weren't performing publicly. Exactly, yeah. Was that because you wanted to work stuff out musically? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I was seeking.
0: I am really curious. When you did that famous recording, Night at the Village Vanguard, and you had a trio fronted by a saxophone, what led you
1: to do that? Well, you know what led me to do that was I'd like to play by myself and uh, I'd like to go out and play by the water, by the uh, ocean, uh, I go in the park, any place where I can be alone with my saxophone. I, that's what I always like to do. And, and the idea of the piano, which is a beautiful instrument, I played with some great piano players is the piano is a very dominating instrument. So when I was playing with Miles as band, and uh, we used to do a thing which we call stroll. Stroll means that in the middle of a number you're playing, the piano lays out. That's what strolling was. We used to do that all the time. I love strolling. I always liked to put all the music in my head, created myself, patterns ideas, thoughts, passages, anything like that, I needed to have complete freedom to do it. So I made plenty of records with saxophone, bass, and drums. That was sort of the thing I became famous for doing. And that's sort of where it came from. That was the impulse.
0: And that reminds me, you have this way when you're when you're soloing of referencing songs. Oh yeah, which I love. <laughs> but it, the way you have to be able to listen while you're playing, because obviously you're not thinking, "Oh, I'm no, going to get to where or when." I mean, clearly you're not doing that. I tried
1: that, but it didn't work. You know, I used to when I was practicing, I'd practicing and say, "Oh, gee, this fits something I'd be playing." Wait, gee, wait till I get to the club tonight. I'm going <laughs> to play this, and everybody will think I'm so clever. But I couldn't do it because the music is going so fast. Things are happening, and you can't do that. I can't stop to say, oh, well, now I'm going to play this clever little quote. Only you just have to, to get that quote in your head, and when it comes out, who knows where it'll come out sometime. But you can't make it come out not when you're soloing. Say so that's real improvisation. There's a second level of improvisation where you can do that. You can just play riffs and things that you know are going to work at a certain place and play them. Mm-hmm. That's one thing, but that's not the highest form of improvisation. It's when you don't think, like Zen. You let the music play you. I don't know everything. I want want the universe to to inform me. I don't want to tell the universe, oh, gee, I heard this song, uh, Will You Still Be Mine, and I'm going to play it. No, no, the universe knows better than that. I want the universe to tell me something. In other words, as a soloist, when you're soloing, you're not going to get lost and not know where the... The bridge of a song is, or the first aid of, no, no, that is embedded. So that's okay. So you have to practice your material and know what piece of music you're working on. Once you get that, you're not even there. You're standing up there blowing. And whatever is in the universe is coming to you.
0: It's like you are the music.
1: You are the music. You are the music. And boy, that's you can't get much higher than that. I don't care what kind of drugs you take, you're not gonna get that high.
0: Well, I think that's why people are taking drugs, they well, wanna get to that people, space. So, <laughs> oh yeah,
1: yeah, they try, of course, of course. But they, you can't, it's not there. This is the real thing. You spent time in India. Yes, I did. And clearly
0: you've put time and effort and thought into spiritual practice. Oh, yes. I'm curious about whether you looked at your music differently because of your spiritual practice.
1: Well, I, I don't better. think so. I mean, if I did, it happened without my knowledge. Uh huh. As a boy, I've always been a person that had a knowledge that there was a conscience within me. There was something else besides me. You know, there was something there that was bigger than me more smart than me, more just than me. I always felt that.
0: Does music allow you to access that?
1: I don't know. I think that anybody can be a enlightened person. I've met people in my life that have nothing to do with music. No,
0: exactly, but we know there are many different paths. Yes. And I guess what I'm asking, do you think music is your, your path?
1: Well, I guess so. I think it definitely was my path, and I'm so grateful because I loved it, and I did something in my life which I loved. And as a matter of fact, when I was about seven years old, or eight years old, maybe, when I got my first saxophone. I knew that I would be a prominent musician. I knew it.
0: But what what strikes me is that that you were willing to do the work. In other words, I'm going to be a prominent musician and I have a saxophone, and then you just wait for prominence to descend on you. You understood, even at that young age, that Yeah, but I didn't was... know
1: what it would take.
0: No, of course not. I didn't now, know what you? it would take.
1: And uh, as I said, I'm blessed by wanting to play all the time. And when these young kids write to me, I always let them know... That's the greatest thing in the world is to be playing your instrument. That's the greatest thing in the world because it's you and the universe just communing with your instrument. I do not see what can top that. That's why I went in the room when my mother gave me that saxophone. I was in seventh heaven. I I wasn't even in the same world anymore. Anyway, uh, you know... I haven't been active for a while. I have to accept the fact that I didn't get to what I wanted to do as a musician, as a player. And uh, I probably would still be practicing that because I'm sure I would be if I was performing. I'm grateful for having the chance to play the horn the times that I did.
0: For as long as you did.
1: Well, as long as I did also, but I had more to learn. I had more to to get to, and I didn't get to it. But if I was playing today, I would still be looking for more because there is no end to I was it.
0: about to say, yeah. yeah, what would be enough? Yeah,
1: yeah. there's no thing that's enough because there's always more. There's always more to learn and play. So the, after coming to that realization, and I, I didn't feel so bad about the fact that I had to uh, stop playing. So I'm really a happy camper.
0: Good. Not everybody can say that. Yeah, no, I can say that. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you. Thank you. Truly, thank you very much. That was 2010 National Medal of Arts recipient, and 1983 NEA Jazz Master tenor saxophonist extraordinaire, Sonny Rollins. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.